Genesis chapter 2. Think about this. As we've studied the first chapter and, and this far to verse 18 in the second chapter, we've been filled, filled with wonder and amazement. We think about the things that God has made. We look up at the heavens. We look at the stars. We look at the sun and the moon, and we just say, wow, how good, how, how amazing. Look at your handiwork. We, we look at the, the ocean. We look at the sea creatures. We look at the animals, the trees. And we even look at how we're made, and we say, God, it really is good. You are an amazing creator, and our hearts just overflow with thankfulness to him because of who he is. And I, I pray that through the word of God, just reminding you that you would look again and see who he is, his glory and his creation. We look at those things and we're truly in awe. And then we get to chapter two, God creates marriage and we're like, well, uh, that's supposed to be good. (laughs) That's not, I know he says it's beautiful. I, I know he says that it's great. Like we're in awe of the sunset, but are we in awe of everything that God has designed or just some of the things that God has designed? And this is the design of God in marriage. Yes, he created man. Yes, he created woman. But we get a lot of explanation here, this first mention of marriage, the institution of marriage in the Bible. So why is it that the sunset's beautiful and marriage isn't? always that way. You might say, well, people are involved in marriage, and and we're sinful. But God still said that that when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. Did he not? The Lord still compares his love for us like he's the groom and and we're the bride. So he tells us all these wonderful things about marriage. So, So why is it that there's this intense struggle? Is it possible that even though many of us are married, we're not necessarily, and I realize there's two people, I'm, I'm, I want to be full of compassion and understanding. Is it possible that we're not doing marriage the way God says we're supposed to do it? That what God says is marriage really is right and really is good, but are we applying ourselves to what he says it should be? His design, him initiating it. This is the book of beginnings, isn't it? The creation But now we get this initial introduction, the supernatural design of marriage. The rest of the word of God elaborates in many sections on marriage and the commands and the design of marriage are not just here, but this is the beginning. There is a lot of strife when it comes to speaking the truth about husband and wife. It's it's a battle. It's a battle that Satan does not want us to. To win. It's a strategic area that our enemy, who desires to kill, steal, and destroy, has said, look, I'm going to get in there and convince the world and even convince God's people that marriage isn't what he says it is. So as we study this institution of marriage, realize that our enemy knows how important it is to the glory of God and to the will of God. And as we move forward through the scriptures and even in a couple weeks to the marriage conference that we're hosting, realize that your flesh will be looking for loopholes and excuses about, which, about what God says he's, he has made for his glory. And realize that the enemy 
is against God's design in every single way. If he can get us bickering, if he can make us skeptical, if he can make us accusatory, then the enemy has won. So let's certainly apply understanding to this subject, compassion for where each person is. At the same time, I know and you know that there's one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, and that's the Lord Jesus. There are so many people who are against marriage, mockers of marriage. And I'm not just talking about outside the body of Christ. I'm talking about people within the church, people who profess Jesus as Lord. But really, when we look at the word of God, marriage isn't super complicated, but it is definitely a point of conflict. And we're here before the word of God to say, Lord, we, we don't, we don't want to concede to the enemy. Ask him to take your doubts, to take your excuses, to take your cynicism, and to give you the truth in love. There are certain things that we're told we're not supposed to talk about, right? Say, so don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics. Those are the big no-nos. If you want to stay at peace with people, just don't mention these things. I don't agree with that, those two. But marriage is quickly becoming one of those things. If you don't want to tick people off, just, just don't talk about it. It's too controversial. It's sad. Somebody can be going through extreme troubles in their marriage, and people around them know it. And they're like, well, I better not say anything. <laughs> That's like one of those no-no subjects. Whose hands is that, that playing into? Satan's hands, right? Ask the Lord to open your heart. I'm asking him to open up mine. Do you believe that God has given you this guidance on marriage because he is good? That's a, a yes or no question. Has God given us this guidance because he's good? Do you know that he's communicated these truths to you and to me because he cares for us? He cares so much for us that he carried our sin to the cross. Don't kick against his divine design. Verse 18 of chapter two says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. I'll ask you a few questions. Some of these are just a simple yes or no, but we'll still consider it in the scriptures. Number one, should every person get married? It says here in verse 18 that it's not good that man would be alone. I'll make a helper that's comparable to him. So does this mean everybody should get married? The Lord uses marriage in, in a, just a powerful way. And if you look at the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, we have the beginning of marriage right here all the way through, and we get to read about the marriage supper of the lamb, ordained by God, pure in his sight, not good that man should be alone. But then the word of God also says this, Paul writing, inspired truth regarding singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now, Paul was single when he wrote this. And he, did he not say that it's good, that 
it would be good if each would remain as him. So both marriage and singleness are described as good in the Bible. Now, Genesis 2 is about being married, not being single, but it's still worthwhile to point out that each decision for our lives is according to the design of God for us. It's clear in the scriptures that we're gifted. Some are gifted to remain single. He may have gifted you to be married, even though you might not feel like that's a gift. He has gifted that to you. You're supposed to think that's sort of funny. You must be like, oh, (laughs) I better not laugh about that. Lord, is there a return policy on the gift that you gave me? Is there a gift receipt? No. He gifted us in our lives, called us in our lives to be some to be single. If the gift of singleness would have been for all of us, that would have not, that wouldn't have been good. It's also possible that there can be a certain season where God calls an individual to be single and there might be a different season where he calls them to be married and vice versa. So when God says that marriage is good, we shouldn't approach it with skeptical eyes just because it's not for every single person. Still, most people get married. Even people that don't acknowledge God or seek to please him. So God tells us that it's not good that man should be alone. That's in in general terms. Now, did you notice as you were studying that this is the first time God said not good? Before, he's saying, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. It was one of those repeat phrases in the evening and morning and the first day, and God saw that it was good. Then we even saw at the end of day six that God saw that it was very good, right? Question number two, was all of this on day six? I submit to you that indeed it was the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve. If God said at the end of day six, and he did, the scriptures tell us, that it was very good, does that mean if he made Eve after that, that he changed his mind and said, "Uh, no, it's not good. We need a woman around here. Is that what we're saying? No, God looked at everything that he did and all of his creation, even the creation on, of day six, where he created Adam and Eve and looked and said, it is very good. But here we get this looking back on the sixth day of creation in chapter two. And God says this, it's not good that man would be alone. So I believe that Eve was created on the sixth day. I even have a theory about evening that she was created in the evening but the etymology doesn't really support that. Well, that word comes from eventide in the English, if you look it up. Now, where did the English come up with Eve? Was, I mean, there was a lot to make on the sixth day. God made the cattle in the fields. He made the beasts, then he made Adam. Then we'll learn that Adam named the animals. And it's getting kind of late, and Adam's kind of dense, and he realizes he needs help, and Eve's, Eve is created by the Lord. But don't think of it like this, or do think of it like this. It's, it's like a picture that God is painting on that sixth day. The master artist with all of the material there before him. Because he created the creatures out of the dust of the ground and, and Adam out of the dust of the ground and Eve out of Adam. He's creating on that sixth day. And he, he makes the animals and he makes Adam. Don't think of it like, oh, that God was scratching his chin. Like, what am I missing? Uh, No, instead, there was a pause, and it was probably, I'm saying more like, okay, here's Adam, here are the animals, he sees them, when is it going to hit him that somebody's missing? So we have a sixth day 
He's tending the garden. He's naming the animals. He's going to see it soon. And we'll get to the Lord creating Eve. Now, God did not say, be fruitful and multiply, look at 128, to Adam by himself. You look at the end of that day, 128, did he just say to Adam, be fruitful and multiply? And Adam's like, no. He said that to Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply at the end of that day six. So was all of this on the sixth day? I say, yes, it was. Should everybody get married? Not necessarily, although the Bible says it is good for man to not be alone. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, a helper comparable to him. It would have taken a few hours to name the animals. You might say, well, that's, that's crazy. There's all kinds of different animals. He named the kinds of animals, the Bible says, not the breeds of animals. So he didn't need to say, like, that's a quarter horse, that's an Arabian, that's a thoroughbred. He just said horse, and it was done. He, he didn't go through, and like, that's a Rottweiler, that's a German Shepherd, that's a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. It's dog. He, he's done. The kinds of animals, the scriptures tell us. And it doesn't say that he named the sea creatures here. So uh, Answers in Genesis is a great resource for this. They actually like, clocked out, even if Adam was kind of slow, how long it would have taken him. They're saying it would take him about two or three hours. If you have time on your hands, just try to name them all, maybe a little slow on the gun. But here we have him naming the kinds of animals, God creating Adam in his image, a creative being, grazing animals, birds and, and beasts of the field. I'm naming them. Question number three, did God use the animal naming to cause Adam to see that he needed a companion? I know this is often taught this way. The scriptures don't completely say that to us, but we look at what a great friend the Lord is to Adam. He brings all of these animals to him. First of all, he planted him a garden, and now he brings the animals to him by kind, the same way that the animals were gathered to go on the ark um, later before the great flood. And Adam then names those. And he's going down the list. That, that lion and the lioness, they go together. That the stallion and the mare, they go together. The drake and the hen, they go together. Lord, what about me? Was that his realization? I've been here all by myself since this morning, right? A long time. So some... How long did it take him to realize that it wasn't good that he was alone? I believe the scriptures teach that it wasn't very long. God saw that. Uh, this is, tells us something about how badly man needs help. It wasn't, it wasn't too long. Unless you believe each day was millions of years and then he would have been waiting a long time. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So what is meant by comparable? Not comparable, but comparable. This does not mean a helper for him to be competitive with. It's comparable. It's, it's together. Michelle and I, we, we love to play stuff, like sports against each other. I don't know if you, like, we'll be downstairs, you know, ping pong, pool wars, you, you know, you name it. It's like, so we compete at that level, but it's not supposed to be a competitive 
relationship or a commanding relationship, there's not a helper comparable for Adam before Eve is created by the Lord. The animals, they're going to provide some help, but not the kind of help that Adam needed the most. Now, wasn't the Lord himself a good enough companion? I know that Adam was made in the likeness of God, in the image of God, but he's not comparable in in the way that God speaks of here in his word. So this is God helping Adam through others, isn't it? To the glory of God. This comparable translated a lot of different ways. It's to meet, it means to adapt, it means to complete, it means to be well-suited, it means corresponding. So Adam and Eve were literally partners in accomplishing the glory of God. I'm not a big fan of the term partner recently. Like, I like to just say it, wife, you know, esposa, it's mi esposa, that's, that's your spouse. But complementary companions, this instructions given to them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it to have dominion. So comparable, like him. Question five, why are so many people insulted by the term helper? And so I I did a survey on this today, and what is it about what God says in his word in the design of marriage that is so abrasive to so many people, unbelievers and believers alike? So I, I roamed around the Sierra College campus and just asked people, um, is there anything bothersome to you about saying that a woman is supposed to help a man? Just trying to get to the heart of, and, and just a couple people said, no, that doesn't bug me. Most people said, oh yeah, that bugs me a lot. But the Bible says here that part of who Eve is is to help her husband. The, one of the most insightful answers that I got from a certain couple, they said that, well, being a helper is like being an apprentice. It's, and if she's the helper, then she can never become accomplished or, or well-versed at what she does. Usually, if you think in terms of a helper in, in business or, or even the construction world, that person, if they work hard and, and they apply themselves and they're ambitious and capable, then they graduate from being a helper. So what is, is that what it is? Is that what is insulting about being a helper? Like she shouldn't be relegated to the role of helper. Are we thinking, I'm asking myself and I'm asking you, are we thinking like the unbelieving world does or are we thinking biblically? Let's talk about help and the term helper. And I do understand the perspective and even agree with it to some degree when it comes to why is, is this like mean she's a constant apprentice that, that, can never accomplish. But what does the Bible say about help? Ezer is the Hebrew word for help right here. And I'm terrible at pronouncing Hebrew words. I practice them, but I don't have the right accent. And do you know what it means? It means help. That wasn't very useful. I looked it up. I'm like, well, that's a word that means, Ezer means help. So then I looked at the different contexts that Ezer is used in, and it is used to describe the help that God gives us. So now do we understand what kind of help the Bible's talking about? Does the word of God not say that the Lord is our helper? Is that insulting? 
Psalm 54, 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. We sang Psalm 121 earlier. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Help. The help comes from you, Lord. You're the maker of heaven and earth. So we receive help from almighty God to live out our lives. Are we thinking biblically in regards to help and how wonderful it is, what a high calling it is? Let me ask you this. What are some of the names for the Holy Spirit? That's one of them, right? Comforter, helper. Is he not God Almighty, our helper, the one who Jesus sent? Service or or help actually can mean greatness, can it not? Are we starting to think biblically instead of worldly now? Isn't it true that service can truly mean greatness? Jesus said this in Matthew 20, 28. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all, the helper of all. The Bible does not say if you want to be great, go to servant school and graduate and then become a pastor or an evangelist or or a preacher. No, it says be a servant. That's what greatness in the kingdom of God is. So part of the reason that we don't see help even in the will of God and for the glory of God as that great is we start to take on a worldly mindset instead of see who is our helper. It's the Lord himself, our savior, our servant king. Have we bought into the lies of the world? Are we valuing what God values or are we seeing things through eyes that are, that are corrupt? The Bible does say, the Lord speaking, I'll, I will make a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman. That must have been a little woman. Are you thinking about that? I just, I think of weird things. When I'm a kid, I'm like, just a rib and some flesh? I mean, just... God's bigger than that. And he brought her to the man. So he plants a garden for him. He brings in the animals to name him. And then the Lord himself brings Eve to Adam. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Ask you the sixth question. Maybe I skipped number five. No. Why are we so insulted by the term helper? The sixth question. Is there anything stronger than the union of of one flesh? That's what the union of marriage is called here in God's word. Michelle is teaching this passage tonight to the fourth through eighth graders, and one of the analogies she's, analogies she's using, object lessons, is, is puzzle pieces. And the way they fit together just right, they're comparable to each other, the, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. But there's a way that the puzzle piece falls short, and what is it? 
Well, when you put together a puzzle, you can see the picture better, and the picture comes together. You're looking at the box, matching it with the picture. But you can still see, like, the line between the two pieces and where one piece starts and one piece ends. And the Bible says that in marriage, the two become one flesh. They're literally together, that you can't tell where one starts and one ends, that they are one. That's powerful. Unlike the lion and the lioness, the woman that God made came from the body of the man. He formed her with his hands for Adam. So, so now it's, it's hard for me to keep up with all the, the terms that are derogatory or that people don't understand anymore. When you say woman, that's not derogatory. Look at what the Bible says. Now, I realize it can be said in a derogatory way or a condescending way, but Adam says, she came out of me. She's bone of my bone. She's flesh of my flesh. She's a part of me. Therefore, I'm going to name her. That's my job. And I'm going to name her woman, he says. And there's nobody else like that for him. This oneness, this one flesh, it's the same idea that Jesus uses when he communicates his oneness with the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Is that close or what? One flesh. So the Bible says here, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That means when a marriage is separated, that flesh is torn. That there's, it's literally dismemberment. It's, there's, our society is telling us there's a neat way to do this. There, there's a right way to do this. There's, you know, there's a civilized way. To, there's no civilized way to dismember a person, is there? If you said to them, like, well, I'm going to chop your arms and legs off, but I'm going to do it very nicely. It's ridiculous. The Bible says, one flesh brought together by the Lord. This is God telling us how close this holy union is before him. And later in the scriptures, we'll say, what God has joined together let no one separate. So sometimes we think in terms of, well, I joined us together. I mean, I'm the one that asked her to marry me, or I'm the one that said yes, or we're the ones that said I do. And the scriptures say, no, it's God who joins. It's God who makes one flesh. Is there any, anything stronger than the union of one flesh? Not, not that I see in the word of God, applied even to the triune God himself. Now, if we look at verse 24 and ask another question, why the emphasis on leaving father and mother? Part of this is because the husband is to be the provider. That responsibility doesn't fall on the parents of the husband. Now I realize you say, well, just be a little open, more open-minded about where we get our provision from. The scripture is telling us literally that it's that man's job to provide for his family, to provide for himself and his wife. Now that doesn't mean that a wife isn't industrious. In fact, if you read Proverbs 31, hopefully you read it a lot, especially if you're an unmarried man, it's not at all that she's forbidden to earn or be industrious. That's just the opposite but the actual provision 
for the family, for the marriage, for the two, is on the husband's shoulders. The scriptures tell us that he who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel, is worse than an unbeliever. And so we see God from the very beginning when he institutionalizes marriage, when he explains marriage, leave your father and mother, cling to your wife. You guys are now uh, a separate family in one way. And I realize there's the larger family, but you guys belong together. It's your job to provide for her. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, later on, in the coming chapters, we'll learn that they end up clothing themselves. They get some fig leaves and they make some clothes for themselves. And so at first you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, they're not really ashamed because there's not anybody else around, right? It's just them. And so they're like, we got good temperature. We don't need clothes. Nobody else is wearing clothes around here. There's nobody else around here. But then later on, after the fall, after they sin, then they are ashamed. They're aware of their sin, right? And there still isn't anybody around, and they're covering up. And the Bible says here that they didn't have shame. They didn't know anything except for God's design at this point. And in the coming chapters, they're going to become aware of the abuses and the temptations. And we learned about the tree of knowledge of good and evil already. And you see how God is saying there was a purity to everything at this point. That is, they were in the garden. It's something that we can't really understand because we're living in a fallen world. We have a sinful nature because of Adam. And we see Adam and Eve, there was a purity here, not a perversion. People read this, and if they take it that way, that's not the way the Bible is, is meaning for it to be. But it's that there's a purity here to their relationship. God put us together this is good, this is very good, and that shame doesn't come until they sin. As we look at Adam and Eve, oftentimes we think, well, God in all of his goodness obviously made a woman that he knew Adam would really like. And he obviously made Adam to be a man that, that Eve would, would really like. You're thinking, he, had, he didn't have any options. Let's put it that way. It wasn't like, okay, these are, it's like, here she is. She's your wife. God is just, that's supernatural design, right? And when it comes to us in our world, in our country, I, the same is true. You get to listen to the leading of the Lord, first according to his guidance and his parameters, but also according to the person, I mean, they need to choose you back, but you, you're choosing that person. We're not doing arranged marriages. At least they're not completely arranged these days. Here, there's a little bit of encouragement sometimes, right? And so tomorrow night, uh, we're going to talk to a lot of our young adults and even high school kids about marriage. They don't want to talk about it, right? But if they're not, we already know they're thinking about it. And to think about it through the lens of God's word and what he says about marriage instead of putting it off and letting the unbelieving world shape and form their idea of what God has designed. Um, be here for that if, if you're not too old. Encourage the people 
who are in that age group to be here. It's, it's super necessary. It's right here in the word of God. There's a host of topics that, that we hope to study in regards to that. I looked at the marriage um, conference list the other day, and I don't know why it works this way. We have a, a seminar on training children, and the people who sign up have well-behaved kids. I'm like, what's going on? Why are these people on the list? All of us could definitely use instruction, right? I look at the marriage list, like these people, they love each other. They, they care for each other. Um, and you see something there that though people that have marriages that are, are good the way God, they're, they're working at it. And I realize it's a two-way street. I'm not saying it isn't. And there's a lot of difficulty there when it's, it's not going both ways. But I, I encourage you, all of us need that direction in our lives. And even if you've been married for a long time, Pastor Nick had um, Michelle and I for premarital counseling, and so much of what he said was so true. And I wasn't even married yet. And now the longer that I've been married... 24 years now, now I realize that it's even more true and that it's deeper and more rich and that I need it even more than the day that I heard it before I was even married. So uh, apply yourself to that. It's good according to God. Let's pray to him. Lord, I, I thank you for every bit of beauty that you've made, for everything that you've said is good. Lord, we choose to, to hold on to and to embrace and to apply everything that is of your design, Lord, and help us to, to do things and to live and to operate and to think the way that you made us to, Lord. I pray that we um, wouldn't drift, but we would tether ourselves to, to that which is good. Thank you for loving us so much that you give us clear instruction, Lord. I pray that we'd be willing to to be different and to stand out with your truth because this world certainly doesn't know how to do marriage. They certainly don't know how to be happily married, Lord. They certainly don't know how to love one another apart from you. And I pray that, that our homes, that our marriages would shine as a beacon to them, Lord, of, of your grace, not of, of us just caring for each other a lot or liking each other a lot, but your love poured through us for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.